people, I did tell several before, I said they were probably going to sleep through it anyways because they're all worn out and tired. But um, actually, I planned for us this afternoon to talk about uh, something in continuation with the theme that they've been looking at, uh, hoping that they would be back in time. And of course, even if they weren't, it'd be beneficial for us uh, to consider. But some of you are aware, especially maybe the parents, um, but they were looking at this weekend some of the radical or hard sayings of Christ. Some of the things that he said that are backwards to us sometimes, even as we comprehend that they uh, mean something and we kind of understand the concept, it's still hard for us to grasp. Things like the last shall be first, you know, uh, even as a lot of us have been joking about sports and college football and all yesterday, you know, everybody wants to win and we work, people work really hard to get to the top. So it doesn't make sense. Then when somebody says, oh, well, the last are the ones who are really going to be first. And again, we, we understand the concept of what Jesus means about being a servant, um, but some of these things do sound backward, and often they sound very hard. Uh, they sound like things that are radical, certainly, to the ways of the world. Uh, many of you weren't able to be with them, but Heath had given us a schedule, uh, and they talked about several things, including uh, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, that if you want to be perfect, you should go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in, your, in heaven and come follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. And each one of these, Heath would have some kind of, of course, application exactly. And, and the idea of let the dead bury the dead. It's those who would be caught up in lots of other things in the world and putting off following Christ. So in that one in particular, Heath had titled it, Let the Dead Bury the Dead, Excuse-Free Living. And we understand that even as those standing before Christ would try to make excuses about, I've got other things I've got to do, I've got to be busy, I've got to take care of these things. And he says, you can come up with all kinds of excuses that you want, but you need, of course, to follow me. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. If you've opened up to Matthew chapter 10, you see one more, and there are many others, of course, that could be looked at, of the hard sayings of Jesus. You know, we know from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6 that Jesus is prophesied, prophesied as being the Prince of Peace. That's going to be one of his names. He's described that way prophetically by Isaiah. He's the Prince of Peace. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 7 that Jesus gives us the peace that passes all understanding. However, we must understand that being his disciple will not always mean a peaceful, peaceful life. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, one of the hard or difficult sayings of Jesus is, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, and I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We want to think this afternoon about really several of the verses here in verses 34 through 39, but I want to start with that one and kind of come back around to it. It's interesting because especially here in our country, many people are already gearing up for December and the holiday that comes there towards the end of December, and there's nothing wrong, obviously, with thinking about peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and so many people think about peace during that season and that, type, that time of the year peace on earth. All of these things are, are great. But how can we then reconcile the idea that we should be people of peace, but Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. Well, as we think about this passage, again, it may be something you've considered before, but as followers of Christ, I think it would help us uh, to think about it this afternoon and again, kind of maybe uh, wrap up what the young people have been thinking about and certainly for us as we think about going out into the work week and the world that we face each week. 
The first point this afternoon is that the Prince of Peace came to bring conflict on earth. He did. That's what he says here. We are told in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 3 that we are to be good soldiers or soldiers in the Lord's army. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18 that we realize that we are to wage the good warfare. You see, it is a soldier's job to fight. And faithful disciples are engaged in ongoing warfare with the forces of darkness. Now, even as we've been talking about on Wednesday night, the idea of the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit, and we create these realms, you know, unseen spirits that move around. And so we talk about the powers of darkness. It's easy to make that the same kind of idea, these unseen forces that are working and good and evil and all these things. But when we recognize the world around us, there are lots of evil forces that we have to wage war against. You know, the American people really, uh, even before a lot of these kids were born, have been told that we were waging a war against terrorism and that we should not expect or we should not expect it to be over any time in the foreseeable future. Many of you, again, older folks remember days like 9-11 where we're told that we're going to go into this fight and it's going to last a long time. And many of you have had family and friends that have been fighting for a long time in other parts of the world. We will have enemies in this world and we will have to be prepared to deal with them both at home and certainly abroad. But the point this afternoon is that it's the same way in the Christian's war against Satan and the forces of evil in this world. In fact, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spirit, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Think real quickly with me. As far as Christians, we are in a war between morality and immorality constantly surrounded by the immorality of this world do what you want to do party however you want to party be with whoever you want to be with all of these immoral ways we are in a war between morality and immorality we're in a war between truth and error i've been saying that for as long as i've been preaching that that is sort of the battle that especially here in the united states we have to face you can't tell me there's a truth you will do what you want to do and i'll do what i want to do but we know the Bible teaches there is truth, and certainly if it's not a part of truth, then it's error. So we wage war between truth and error, and we wage war, thirdly, between God's will and Satan's devices. Even as we talked about, was that last Sunday or the Sunday before, uh, I guess two Sundays ago, the idea of God's desire, God's will for mankind. We can know what it is that we should be striving to do, but we're always at war between that and Satan devices, whether it is the movies or the TV or the music or what we read or just what surrounds us, it's hard to ignore those things. And we are constantly going in war between these two sides. Christians must expect opposition. In fact, something is wrong with us if we do not come across resistance from time to time. In fact, Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6 and verse 26, woe. How often does he say that to the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. I don't know about you, but if I'm not careful, this is one I can be guilty of. Because I like when people like me. I like to have friends. I want people to get along and to speak well of me and have a good reputation. But woe to you. 
if everyone only says good things about you, because chances are, as the song would say, you'll fall in for anything, you know, if you stand for nothing. And you've got to take a stand sometimes, and the reminder of that, of course, comes to us in this verse, the Prince of Peace came to bring conflict on earth. Number two from this passage, the model of family, the model of family love makes enemies within households. The model of family love makes enemies within households. You know, Christ's love for the church gives us a pattern for the way a husband should love his wife. In fact, in my class this morning with the young adults and the few that were in there, we talked about Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, being a good spouse, relationships, marriage and dating and that kind of thing. And we talked about the standard that Jesus sets or the Holy Spirit sets for us through the words of Paul, and it's that standard of Jesus. If we are to love and to submit as Christ, love the church, and as we are to submit to Christ, that is a perfect pattern for the way a husband should love his wife and the way the wife should submit to the husband. If we follow Christ's teachings, we have a perfect recipe for happiness in the home. Yet here Christ says that he came to set men against their fathers and daughters against their mothers. That's actually a reference. You may have, your Bible may have these verse in verse 35 of Matthew chapter 10 italicized because it's a quote from Micah chapter 7 in verse 6. Micah 7, 6, which says, For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his own household. You know, families often interfere with a person's choice to follow Christ. Sometimes parents object to their children becoming Christians. This is especially difficult when the child is young and still lives at home and is dependent upon their parents for their care and support. And maybe this child is saying, I want to become a Christian, but the parents are saying, no, 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 we don't want you to do that. You'd be silly if you kind of fall in with all those folks at that church and they discourage them. That's tough. But sometimes parents try to object to their children becoming Christians. Sometimes mates try to interfere with their spouse's faith. Once again, this morning in class, I was talking to our young people about, about some situations that I've been aware of in my lifetime where maybe a, a spouse came with another spouse. They came together, but that spouse said, I, I don't care anything about becoming a Christian. I'll go and I'll sit there, but that's, that's about it. I know other situations where the spouse says, I'm not even coming. I, it doesn't matter what you say. You can go. You can take the children, but I'm not coming. And yes, sometimes mates try to interfere with spouses' faith. And yet sometimes hostility and mistreatment comes from our own family. Members of our own family become enemies because of Christ. And we kind of go back to our young people again, just an encouragement. It's so hard when young Christians are forced to choose between the Lord and loved ones in their families. Appreciate, again, all the prayers that have been offered today, Jeff and, and Robert, but it's a reminder that we are so thankful for our young people and many of the parents who are bringing them and trying to encourage them because it's hard when there is that hostility. The point of the second part of this passage in verses 35 and 36 is, of course, when conflicts come, Christ must come first. When conflicts come, Christ must come first. Jesus says it there in verse 37. If you love him, love him more than father or mother, or else you're not worthy of him. Love him more than son or daughter, or you are not worthy of him. To be worthy of Christ, we have to be willing to bear our crosses for him. And of course, Jesus is speaking figuratively. 
you all have heard me say it even recently. I talk about the idea that I, I guess God could have said we have to do anything, right? I usually say he could have said 10 jumping jacks. He could have traveled to Jerusalem. What if? What if he said we had to hang on a cross in order to be saved? Jesus says we must bear our cross. But, of course, he's speaking figuratively. He does not mean that we have to hang on a literal wooden cross and go to Golgotha to be crucified for him. And you know what's really interesting about that? Many first century Christians, they could do that, right? The world's much smaller. Most Christians are in that area. They could, and some probably did, be crucified. They were crucified because of their faith in Christ. But of course for us here, cross-bearing means enduring heavy burdens because of Christ. Jesus gives us that great comfort in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's true in regard to the burden of sin. However, Jesus did not say that Christianity was without cost or even that the price was very small. I think that's the other problem that we sometimes get backwards is that Jesus, we think what Jesus meaning is it shouldn't be a big deal. It should not be that hard. The price should be small. He paid the great price. We sing songs like that, right? He paid the ultimate price. So maybe ours should just be a little bit. Every Christian must pay a price to follow Jesus. But the price we pay is nothing in comparison to the cost that Christ paid in purchasing the church with his blood. But yet we do have a cross to bear and while we're thankful we don't go hang literally on a wooden cross, it does not mean that our life does not come with, will not come with conflict. It does. When conflict comes, Christ must be first. The model of family love makes enemies sometimes within the household. Number three, and finally this afternoon, the third thing we can learn from this passage is that the one who finds life shall lose it, and the one who loses his life for Christ shall find life life. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 39, this last section here of this particular uh, part of scripture, it's a paradox which gets to the heart of what is really important to people. The first life is what is found by the person looking for success and accomplishment in the here and now. Do you remember the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12? He found this kind of life. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And of course, that kind of life will eventually be lost. Too often, it's, it's lost here in this world very quickly. I, I mean, we have countless documentaries and, and TV shows and movies and things about people who have gone from rags to riches, but then a lot of people who have gone from riches back down to the very bottom. They've taken that ease, they've enjoyed all that they had, and then here it comes and it, it's gone again. Wealthy people don't all lose their wealth and die penniless, though. But the attitude which causes a person to put earthly things above heavenly things causes him to lose out on the most important kind of life, the spiritual life. That person may die surrounded by a large and loving family, a host of helpful friends, and a great collection of material things, but he is lost without God. Plain and simple. I mean, you can die in a hospital bed, you can die in a bed in the house that you grew up in that's very small and seems very poor. You can die in a mansion. 
But if you do not have God, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is asking us to consider. Because we can have all of those material things, but if we die without God, we are lost. The life that was lost by Christ's disciples is the kingship of self. Such a one loses self, puts Christ on the throne as Lord of his or her life. That's what we're talking about. We get caught up in these rags to riches stories and those kinds of things and what we can do. And we put ourselves on the throne instead of putting Christ on the throne. Many people in the early centuries of the church's existence literally gave their life for the cause of Christ. We think about Stephen, the great example of Stephen there at the beginning of the books of Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, excuse me. From Stephen onward through the years, people held firmly to the cross of Christ even when it cost them physical life. God's people in the Asian city of Smyrna were encouraged to be faithful unto death and promised, Jesus said, I will give you the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. They traded this physical world, this physical world life for spiritual eternal life. You know, Jesus does not require that we die physically because of persecution. Let me say that again, because I think we sometimes like to hear that, but we don't think about what else is entailed in that. Jesus does not require that we die physically because of persecution. Revelation 4, 14, 13, anyone who dies in the Lord is blessed. But most of us are thankful, especially in the world we live in, we don't have to go to the forefront of the battle and die in persecution. No matter whether that death is a violent death or from natural causes, anyone who dies in the Lord is blessed. However, however, Jesus does require that we crucify self and let Jesus live in us. We know the song, or we know the verse, excuse me, we know the verse because we know the song, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm thankful that's a song that our young people sing because hopefully they are reminded time and time again about how we are to die to ourselves, crucified with Christ. When we think about all of these points we've made this afternoon, self-satisfied church members who are at ease here in this life are not worthy to be Christ's disciples. Christ must be living in us. He must be the controlling force in our lives. We would be wrong if we simply yearn and long for peace. I think that's this false dichotomy that so many people in the world create today. That, that you have to have peace or you're just constantly at warfare. And this statement that Jesus makes can't be true. But you know the prophet Jeremiah also says something in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 14. He talks about people who say peace Peace when there is no peace. You've heard that before. Peace, peace when there is no peace. But I think that sums up what so many in the world are striving for today. They're saying that this, oh, this is a world in which we should all get along. Things should just be perfect and easy. And as Christians, it's easy for us to get caught up in that. But may we be reminded of what Jesus said here. I did not come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. When we think about the radical sayings of Jesus, there are some that our young people have been encouraged with this, this weekend already. And this is one that I think should be at the forefront of our mind as we engage with the world 
around us. For you adults, we kind of made mention of it this morning, if you were here, but we are at a time in our country, as it seems like we are constantly these days, where there are things going on, especially in regards to elections and our elected officials and our country. And we need to realize that while we should do and try to follow God's will and follow his word, elect people who would do that as we believe, we need to also understand that if we are at perfect peace with everyone in the world, then there may be a problem with what we're doing. We will suffer persecution if we are going to live godly. Paul would write and encourage Christians. Christ came to bring division. It's that simple. It's that easy. And as you look at your life around you, and I've said it before, and I'll raise my hand and say it again, as someone who does not have a perfect family, and talking about extended family a little bit, where everyone is faithful to services of the church, it's hard sometimes because we want our family to do what's right. And sometimes we try to still get along and be friends with our family and, and see them and those kinds of things, and we have to struggle with striking the balance between peace and division. Ultimately, as this passage says, we have a responsibility to Christ. We cannot be intellectually lazy so that we don't want to study and learn. Contrary to some people's thinkings, we haven't figured everything out just yet. We still need to be people who are learning. Even as Jesus said, we must worship in spirit and in truth. And when we assemble for worship, it isn't enough to just do the job as a matter of routine. We can't be emotionally lazy because true discipleship requires an investment of our heart. I think a lot of people will look at God's word and they'll want to be lazy in their commitment both intellectually and emotionally. We have to try to set the standard and realize that we cannot be lazy intellectually, we cannot be lazy emotionally, and we can't even be lazy physically. Because Christianity is a religion of action. We, you've heard the sermons before from other preachers, but we sometimes want to put on our Sunday best and show up when we come here in our Sunday best and then go home and hang those clothes up in the closet and act like, well, it's just something that we'll do on Sunday. That it's something that we can be lazy with physically. As James says in James 1.22, we must be doers of the word. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that we should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Is that the way we treat this life? Or is it the way we, we treat it in a way in such we're only longing for peace with everyone around us and we want to be lazy both or in all cases intellectually, emotionally, and physically. Christ didn't come to bring peace. He came, came to bring a sword or to bring division. I hope that you can take that thought with you this afternoon and into your week. I know that all of us have situations in which we can look around us and wonder how we should handle things in a better way. And may we realize that while we do want to be at peace with people, we should live peaceably with all men as much as it depends on us. We also must stand for the truth. If you've got a songbook there in front of you and you want to go ahead and, and get it out as we are about to extend heaven's invitation here, we're thankful for Jesus we're thankful for his death that makes it possible that we can be saved. I hope that even this afternoon, you're thankful for his difficult sayings. We can't be lazy in this life. We have to be challenged to keep studying, to keep growing, to keep working. May we be challenged from this point forward to take all of these sayings, do our best to live them out, 
to be faithful to him and to realize that sometimes it comes at a cost and that cost without a doubt absolutely 100% has to be the things of this world so that we can have eternal life if you're here this afternoon and you're not a Christian we'll be singing to encourage you that you would put Christ on in baptism so that you could be added to the church by the Lord if you are a child of God but you've wandered away or you'd like the prayers of this church we'd be singing to encourage you as well as we stand together and as we sing